This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. 8.46, you're with The Morning Run, Julian, Joyce and Sharitz with you. Now, in the local news, there's been a lot of talk over EPF's 6.15% dividend, uh, which pleasantly surprised a lot of people, even though it came down slightly from last year. Uh, the conventional is 615 and the Sharia returned about uh, 5.9% for EPF holders. Um, and I, I think that even uh, Finance Minister Lim Guan Ng was uh, pretty impressed uh, describing the uh, rate deceleration, uh, even to uh, even if it's a deceleration, was pretty impressive. Yeah, experts were predicting that it would not exceed uh, 5% due to the current challenging and uncertain economic conditions. Um, and yeah, as you mentioned, Guan Ng, if, he agrees. I think he concurred that this is an extraordinary um, uh, performance. Now, yesterday, BFN spoke to EPF CEO Tunku Ali. Zakri Alias and Deputy CEO Dato Mohammad Nasir Latif about uh, EPF's financial performance. He spoke about how they met uh, their investment return of 6.15%. Well, uh, you can see from our first three quarters, we actually did quite well uh, you know, in that sense. But it was just the fourth quarter which we took a beating. And so luckily, we actually managed to go and get that buffer uh, quite quickly uh, in, in the year. So that's one of our, our main reasons, like, you know. And, and luckily also, at the end of the day, we really go into the fundamentals uh, type of assets. So that, that also buffers up. Like. So it's, it's, a, it's a blessing in disguise. You know, we're not one of these cowboy types, you know. We just go for the biggest yields as much as possible. Just stay consistent, stay stable. We constantly sell over the year, but as soon as we make the, the, the profits, we lock it in, like. You know, so our team already started seeing, you know, towards uh, quarter three and quarter three that things were starting to to, to, to loosen, you know. So that was when we started taking uh, uh, our profits in uh, as much as possible. So in a way, I think that was uh, that was a good move from our end. You know, we so just, just to add to that, you see, we are not like other some pension plans that buy and hold. Mm. Yeah. You know, EPA because of the need to pay dividends out of realized income. Yeah. We are trading all the time. You know, even today the guys. So, although the markets they don't just go up like that, there's quite a bit of, you know, ups and downs. So that's where the team sort of like trade in and out as well. We also asked Tunku Ali Zakri why there was a difference. Uh, why there was a difference between the return rate for the Sharia fund and the conventional fund. Uh, Sharia fund and the conventional fund should actually not be uh, compared uh, side by side, because to a certain extent, it's not an apple to apple comparison. It's not fair actually uh, look at the performance because equity consistently outperforms the other three asset classes yes. at the end of the day but it's the composition of the conventional equities that is able to make them get a big bite so for example last year would be from the financial stocks you know they perform quite well which the Sharia uh, fund would have no access to Tunku Ali Zakri also commented on how the existing unit trust industry would have to upskill themselves to handle the change the ones who have a lot of network on the ground will, of course, be a bit worried because what the heck do they do with all that, that huge network and there are huge amount of agents on the ground, right? So most likely from our end, we've been talking to them, they have to transform themselves to become advisory because why would a member want to go and pay, what, 3.5% for what? For you to just be a middleman? Hey, hello, this is the IR 4.0 world, right? The middleman is being cut out, so you have to add value. However, there are also players who already are on the internet punya, uh, or platforms, right? such as, uh, I can't remember often, but there are one or two already, right? They are super excited, and they are actually uh, coming to us and even offering us super attractive rates to zero, because to them, they want the volume game. Right? So for us, it is market forces. 
up front, your front load cost is gone. Mm. Right? Very, very exciting. And that was Tunku Alizakri, the CEO of EPF, commenting on uh, their returns as well as uh, what's happening in the industry. I like a big move, that big statement, mm-hmm. uh, because uh, a lot of the rice bowl of the unit trust agents actually come from the EPF. And in the past, they have had an easy time uh, just making quick money from transferring uh, out of the EPF account into unit trust investments, which is not really a bad thing, but uh, basically earning gaji butala, you know, 3 mm. to 5% yeah. commissions. And, uh, you know, over the long term, that actually represents a very substantial um, bite out of long-term returns, right? Uh, when you pay 3 to 5% commission for just investing something that is a, really a captive market within EPF. So now what EPF is saying is that uh, they're looking at um, launching this electronic platform or electronic uh, method where we can, as EPF holders, can go online and uh, buy unit trust? Absolutely, yeah. But, uh, so it not only offers uh, cheapness in terms of getting into unit trust, but also the convenience. Yeah, and this is also, it reminds uh, it reminds us back to the new Economic Action Council where uh, there was there was comments that one of the missing elements there is with regards to the digital, digital economy. And um, this, this new transformation, uh, EPF, making it more digital and accessible, again, uh, there's that question of upskilling and whether or not uh, in the new act, uh, Economic Action Council, one of the things is to look into upskilling the workforce to be ready for the fourth IR. Um, Sharis, you had a breakfast grill uh, with Bajaya Sompo, and uh, you did also talk about this, right? Uh, the digitalization of the indus- insurance industry. Yeah, that's right. So he emphasized uh, with regards to um, you know, the existing agents to um, add value in their services because regardless how simple the product is, uh, nevertheless, uh, people are still attracted to uh, connect with another individual, especially mm. when uh, an incident were to happen. I mean, it's, it's uh, incident happens, you don't want to rely on the computer. You want to speak to a person, you want to get things done real quick. So, uh, But there is I, that transition, definitely. I, I, I don't know about that argument because uh, I think people are using the um, um, internet and online models uh, quite comfortably for a very, very long time already. You know, I mean, uh, the most common one, you know, your ride-sharing apps, you you have kind of a trust in it. I know insurance is like a more uh, serious product, it's a financial product, uh, but the internet and online, we're going into online payments already, you know, so uh, right. this is going to creep into our lives uh, even more. So maybe when you need some advice, right? I think that's what Tunku Ali Zakri is saying, you know, he's saying that the um, unit trust industry, uh, they, they will have to upskill and transform and become more advisory rather than just be a middleman and just take a and, cut, and, right? and just selling uh, mm. stuff, right? Mm. Pushing, peddling stuff. Um, meanwhile, EPF is also continuing to seek new investments globally. I think this was uh, covered by a few newspapers, but uh, to what extent they can do that uh, will be quite limited because they're almost hitting their maximum uh, 30% c- uh, capacity for foreign investments. Uh, yeah, right? so I, I'm, I wonder whether they're going to ask for an increase with regard to that maximum uh, capacity because they've reached that actual 30%, if I'm not mistaken. So they could still perhaps ask for more? Yeah, they they could ask for more. But, you know, EPF is uh, an 800 billion uh, fund size. Uh, It's approaching 1 trillion any years now, in a couple of years. So uh, it's not so easy for them just to sell and then go overseas because it will have an impact on the ringgit, Mm -hmm. right? But uh, this is why I think it's also related uh, to the fact that EPF allows its members uh, to more and more diversify personally under the EMIS scheme. 
um, where you can uh, now there's no restriction on uh, buying into foreign uh, foreign based unit trusts. So that that is a way that uh, you can take out your money to have a sort of different type of diversification than the general uh, asset allocation that EPF has. And mind you, that's happening to the tune of about 10 billion ringgit a year. People are taking out their funds to mm. buy unit trust. Interesting. Shulan, you were there at the discussion uh, yesterday with EPF. When will this come into play? Uh, sometime, uh, sometime later this year. Mm. Yep. So, so it's happening. Uh, there's no turning back here. Okay, in the other news, uh, the, the Edge Financial Daily reports that China's ambassador to Malaysia, Bai Tian, has revealed that the China Construction Bank is proposing to issue panda bonds uh, in, uh, to Malaysia. Um, I think the relationship between Malaysia and China has been testy over the last uh, few months, not least because Malaysia wants to cancel some of those big projects like uh, ACRL. So uh, China right now trying to court Malaysia you know, by doing videos, uh, sweet videos, uh, <laughs> creating, composing songs for Malaysia and now mm-hmm. uh, offering to do this panda bonds. Yeah, so they've been playing badminton with each other and now the, you know, the shuttlecock is in our court. Uh, they've come up with, a, they've come up with, a, uh, with an offer. Uh, this is to help the governments uh, reduce the financial stress. Now, just to look into the same, like Philippines, they were issued a three-year 1.45 billion yuan panda bond at 5% uh, coupon rate. Philippines government said its panda bond issuance was oversubscribed by 6.3 times with order worth of 9.2 billion. Well, Malaysia's debt service charges are projected to rise to about 33 billion ringgit, or that's about nearly 13% of public revenue in 2019 and increased from the 30- 1 billion ringgit in 2018. And remember, we also have that samurai bonds, and that's about uh, issued for 10 years at about a 7.6 billion ringgit and issued at a 0.65% coupon. Yeah, so, uh, you know, the, the question is whether here you should go uh, with a panda bond or with a samurai bond because the samurai interest rate is very cheap. It's only 0.65%. But if you compare the volatility of the yuan versus uh, the yen, right, uh, Chinese yuan versus the Japanese yen, uh, I think the Japanese yen is very volatile uh, and yet... Uh, it's very cheap interest rate. Whereas the Chinese yuan is very much stable. If you look at the exchange rate over the last few years, um, it's it's been uh, largely uh, pretty stable. Uh, the Chinese government has allowed a certain movement of range. But if the arguments of U.S. politicians are anything to go by, then you know China kind of have a de, de facto peg uh, to the U.S. dollar. Uh, and and some people would say that uh, chi- chi- the Chinese are manipulating the currencies uh, so that uh, they can be more competitive, right? Donald Trump would have you say that. And this is a big question for Malaysia, uh, not only whether you should go for these Chinese bonds, um, you have to consider the exchange rates, but whether you should actually continue with these uh, mega projects uh, that cost the country a lot of money. Yeah, that's right. So a lot is at stake here. Uh, we are talking about several projects. For an example, the Forest City Development, which is located in Johor, and we have our ECRL, the rail transport along the line of the East Coast. They are value uh, that's valued about thirteen billion US dollars. We have the Malacca Gateway, uh, a port of Mal- in Malacca Straits. Costing for the ten billion US dollars, so and again that forest city is, is worth about hundred billion US dollars. So don't, that's the amount that's at stake. Yeah, so all eyes will be on whether or not we're going to take this panda bonds because I don't think there's actual, um, well, much more information right now on these panda bonds. Like how much are we going to 
issue, uh, how much are they going to issue with regards to this pender bonds and also the coupon or yields that will come out of this. So yeah, definitely something to watch out for. Over the weekend also, the new Kazana Managing Director, Dato Cheryl Rizwan, uh, who by the way was EPF's ex-CEO, yeah, right. uh, spoke to the Edge about the role of Kazana uh, will play going forward. Yeah, so he spoke about Kazana's new fold, uh, twofold mandate, saying that it will function like a traditional sovereign wealth fund, focusing on long-term growth of its asset and also playing a strategic role for the government. And despite initial thoughts, he clarified that the fund isn't looking to raise money by selling assets unless it's rebalancing its portfolio. Yeah, he adds one of the aims is that Kazana will hopefully be able to provide stable recurring income to government coffers. That's it. There has been criticisms in the past that the government needs to reduce the role it plays in business. That's right. Uh, to get a perspective of this, we spoke to P. Gunasigaram, who is an independent business analyst and author of the book One MDB: The Scandal that brought down a government, uh, Guna share his, shared his thoughts on Kazana's uh, continued involvement in business. I think I think a lot of people feel that government should not be in business, but uh, that need not necessarily be so, because if you look at Kazana, uh, its holdings are, uh, I'm not sure of the exact figure, but it, it uh, runs up to quite a bit of money. Even if they wanted to divest their stakes, uh, they, there is no private investor actually available to, to take over that stake. Uh, but the participation of Kazana in uh, in government-owned companies uh, the, through through stakes in companies has to be has to be set under certain guidelines now. So this would mean that uh, that it receives no special advantage as a government company. In Singapore, for instance, the the state government has got a huge uh, stake in business there. Yeah? The the uh, Singapore Alliance, which is generally considered to be the best airline in the world, is uh, is controlled and owned by the, uh, by the Singapore government. So is uh, DBS, which is the largest bank in Southeast Asia at last count. So uh, it's not so much that the government should not be in business, but it should be in business according to certain rules and regulations because many uh, the size of many of the operations is, uh, is simply uh, too large for individuals to undertake or individual entrepreneurs to undertake. There may be institutions who may be able to buy the stakes, but certainly not individuals. We then asked him about the merits of this new mandate, particularly with this explicitly stated strategic outlook. I think uh, strategic uh, stakes might be where they want to see uh, greater government participation in certain kinds of businesses. So they may take a stake which may not be very profitable for a period of time, uh, in order to ensure some uh, some strategic advantage that the government wants to have, for instance, the development of the Iskandar development region in uh, in, in uh, Johor, for instance, you see. So these are not things which will give you any money in the short term. The kind of returns that you get will be in the long term, and sometimes uh, you can have losses running for some time. For, for a while before you actually see any kind of returns from the projects, uh, from the investments. You know, so, but uh, I would consider Tanaga and the others to be already mature companies which uh, are able to provide a steady uh, income in terms of dividends and uh, maybe even capital appreciation uh, to Kazana, which can then return some of the gains uh, to the government. I think one of the uh, main uh, ways that the government is looking at Kazana now is of, is uh, is as a source of recurrent income. 
So that is uh, what uh, Kazana has to think about in addition. So the, the I think essentially the mandate doesn't change all that much, but basically uh, it, it has been uh, more clearly stated what it needs to be doing as a sovereign wealth fund. So the two things would be strategic development of uh, certain key businesses in Malaysia, and the other thing is a recurrent to provide a recurrent income for 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 Malaysia, you know, from the holdings that it has, uh, which is seventy percent of the holdings. Uh. And that was P. Gunasegaram, veteran journalist and author of 1MDB, The Scandal That Brought Down a Government. So not easy, not easy to mm. uh, sell down Kazana stakes, uh, even if you believe that the government should not be too much involved in business. I think in the past, uh, he had also suggested that perhaps uh, Kazana could unitize, you know, turn uh, the Kazana investments into unit trust so that uh, Malaysians can buy into small chunks of those companies. Uh, interesting, interesting idea. Okay, uh, after the 9 a.m. news, we will come back with news from Bursa. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.